In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. The Christmas Gospel begins not with a warm manger scene, but with an edict from the imperial power. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing is more accurately the taking of a census. It is a show of power. Caesar counting his people, probably to tax them later on. The decree required the Holy Family to travel some 80 miles to Joseph's ancestral home. I'm convinced that St. Luke wants us to hear Caesar's edict or decree in the light of another biblical decree that is recorded in Psalm 2, which is embedded in our Christmas liturgy. The psalmist questions why the nations conspire against God and against his Messiah. Quote, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds asunder. Let us cast off their chains from us. In response, God mocks them like a fighter who knows his boastful opponent cannot defeat him. Psalm 2 says, quote, He that dwells in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. And then God issues his own decree in the words of Psalm 2, quote, I, the Lord, have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will announce the Lord's decree, that which he has spoken. You are my son, This day have I begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the Christmas decree. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God who will conquer Caesar and all other kings of the earth. At first glance, Christmas seems to be a strange manifestation of this militant decree. God challenges the kings of the earth with a baby in a manger, the child of a poor family, with no standing or power to threaten Caesar. However, the incarnation is a strange strategy only if the problem is misunderstood. The wrong diagnosis leads to the wrong cure. In the world, might makes right. Inevitably, those in power lose sight of God's justice. God's justice is rooted in rendering to everyone what each is due. God's justice means Loving and honoring God first. This is the first and great commandment. And that is the honor that justice requires. Justice then means loving our neighbor as ourselves. Our neighbor as those who bear the image of God. In the biblical view, God judges people and the world based on whether they fulfill the demands of divine justice. 
God's judgments occur in time, and they will be fully and finally executed when he shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. God judges all who do wrong, but God vindicates his people, those who put their trust in him and do what he wants them to do. This is the story of the exodus of God's chosen judges, kings, and prophets, and of the true remnant of God's people in every age. As God said to the prophet Jeremiah when everyone in Jerusalem opposed him, quote, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Because God judges evil and fights for his righteous people, injustice can only be answered by a ruler who is truly just and righteous. A righteous king is needed, one who will fulfill the moral and religious requirements of God's covenant, so that God will judge in his favor. All human attempts to fulfill God's covenant requirements to be truly righteous fall short because of sin. Thus, the oppressed respond to injustice with their own injustice. They also become guilty of sin and worthy of judgment. This is why St. John weeps in the fifth chapter of Revelation. No human being was found who could fulfill the covenant obligations. He writes in Revelation chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, quote, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Jesus conquered in his life and on the cross because he is the truly righteous man. Therefore, God judged and God judges for him and against his enemies. As Philippians says in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, quote, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God's judgments are seen Over time, in the short term, it seems like evil and injustice are winning. But 2,000 years later, Caesar's empire is gone and the kingdom of God is everywhere. Caesar was judged, but Jesus was vindicated in the resurrection. His church lives on in the world as a perpetual witness to him. 
Of course, Caesar's kingdom gave way to subsequent heavy-handed and unjust rulers. The battle between the two kingdoms continues. However, the fate of unjust rulers and people is always the same. They will be judged by him who now has universal dominion. The vindication of God's people is also the same. Jesus is the son of God by nature. We become God's children, as the collect for Christmas says, by adoption and grace. It is our vocation to be the righteous presence of Christ in the world. As we live blamelessly in him, God vindicates us and judges in our favor. Sometimes it seems like the faithful church that prays and does the good works that God has prepared for it is an inadequate response to evil. But the incarnation teaches us that faithfulness and obedience is the only effective response to evil. For they allow, indeed they require, a righteous God to judge for us. Faithfulness and obedience are not passive. We are called to work for the good, to speak the truth, to oppose the evil. Our constant prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is a militant prayer for the overthrow of all injustice and every evil thing that exalts itself against God. But there are two points of caution. First, the church and God's people must never allow themselves to be co-opted by the world. We are witnesses for Jesus. We must never become partisans in the temporal battle. As 2 Corinthians says, quote, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Second, we must not aim at any result in this world. We must leave the results and the judgment to God. On the cross, Jesus both lost the temporal battle and won the eternal victory. Often our faithfulness looks like a failure, but in fact, our faithfulness is the sign that we have already won. Christmas is the necessary beginning of the story of conquest. The incarnation assures us of the victory of Good Friday and Easter. God has become man. The covenant will be fulfilled. The rebellion will be crushed. The righteous one will be vindicated and the evil will be judged. This is our story. Christ lives within us through baptism and faith. Therefore, we 
will conquer every enemy as we continue in faith and faithfulness. God will fight for us, vindicate us, and judge in our favor. As the epistle says, quote, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.